0: to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here, and I teach Old Testament at this campus. I'm joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, our academic dean and professor of New Testament, Dr. Paul Jean, senior pastor of New City Presbyterian Church, and instructor in New Testament, and Grace Sutanto, our professor of systematic theology. And we're going to continue on today in our series of going through the Ten Commandments. We're coming to the end. We're at the penultimate commandment, the ninth commandment, that says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And of course, it's an important commandment. It's an important commandment at all times, but it seems like maybe even you know especially important today when there's so much discussion about false information and and misinformation and alternate truths. it's an interesting commandment because it speaks to not perhaps maybe the more um, extravagant uh, shows of disobedience that we've seen in the prior commandments about committing adultery and about murder. But this actually speaks to a commandment or speaks to a human activity. That really is facing us every day at every moment, you know, at what point and to what extent will you be a person of truth and not a person of deception? The scriptures come back to this over and over again. We're taught in Numbers 23 that God is not like men, that he would lie. We're told in Proverbs 6 that there's multiple things that God hates, and, and one of them, one of them is a lying tongue. And of course, it's an issue that comes up over and over and again in the biblical stories, the the importance that God puts on his people being a people of truth. So I want to start off with you, Dr. Sutanto. Can you help unpack for us in theology and uh, you know, we'll move kind of towards pastoral ministry and everyday life, but in terms of the tradition, how ought we think about this commandment not to lie in the alternate the positive side of it which is to be people of truth
1: yeah thanks so much and i think again a point of departure should be the westminster larger catechism on this and what really struck me from rereading the westminster larger catechism on these commandments is that this is not just truth in the abstract the westminster larger catechism really emphasizes that to be people of truth means that you care about not only your own good name but also the good name of others So that there is a kind of holistic and relational view of what speaking the truth means according to the larger catechism it's not just truth in the sense of you know i'm looking at a white table so i I gotta care about speaking the truth that this is a white table it's it's really who is my neighbor and how do i love my neighbor how do i care for this neighbor and therefore how do i preserve not only their life as we've seen before but also their good name their reputation thinking the best of them as possible Uh, caring for how other people think of them and hence avoiding things like slandering and gossiping and even uh, uh, lying to other people about this person's name because we care about who they are as made in God's image. So again, to talk about speaking the truth, it's not just in mundane matters, but it's actually a very life-preserving act. And it's 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 an act that therefore forwards the reputation of others.
0: That's really interesting. It is. There's this is more than just kind of notarial truth, right? It's more than just sort of stating facts about the world, though it it would include that, but that there's a moral quality to being a person of truth, of, of acknowledging who God is and who humanity is in his image. And that there's a moral imperative that comes along with that call to be truthful.
1: Yeah. And it really fortifies that idea, again, that human beings are not made to be autonomous individuals, that even the daily experience, we we know that we depend upon other people, not just for our physical well-being, but also for the way in which our uh, careers progress, the way in which our families progress. You know, people say that it takes a whole village to raise a child. You know, these things are the way they are because we depend upon, hey, word of mouth. Uh, as we speak about others, about another person's skills or another person's talent that helps that person. And we also depend on other people to to do that for us so that we can contribute something as well. So again, all these commandments are incredibly um, holistic and they hang together. They hang together in the sense that human beings are dependent, human beings are relational, and human beings need one another,
2: therefore, for the flourishing of life. The the positive aspect of that is really interesting to me, Gray. You know, you mentioned the preserving of life and and the promotion of of life of flourishing and things like that as the the intent here. And it kind of heads off that that perspective. Well, I think more can be said. That perspective kind of heads off at the past, a like a misconstrual or a misapplication of the command that that you know whenever something is true, it's worth worth saying. Yeah, I, I'm thinking here of those who would maybe say maybe use the the idea. Well, it's true to uh, to slander somebody, and uh, I guess if it's slander, it has to be false. But you know, to harm somebody's reputation, to harm somebody, e- even if it might be uh, even if it might be true, uh, I can't use that as an excuse for saying it. I still have to ask the question: Is this something that's going to bless? Is this something that's going to help? Uh, that's edifying, that's going to build up versus is this something that is for personal gain or will it harm somebody? Yeah.
1: And and so it goes to show like, what do you dwell upon and what do you like to talk about? And I think we've mentioned before in a previous episode that there's something about our fallen bodies and minds that we tend to get pleasure from seeing people fail, seeing people in pain, seeing people, you know, basically be put down. But this commandment tells us that we need to dwell on the good. That when someone else brings about the faults of another person, our main inkling shouldn't be to, hey, here's more faults that person and kind of snowball it, but rather to say, hey, but, but maybe there's other qualities of this person that are good that you might be kind of blindsided to, and, and you need to consider these things holistically.
0: Well, get that, It's something that we've been talking about with all these commandments, which is that these are, these are life-giving commands, right? There's, there's something about truth. And and yes, it's truth that is loving and charitable. You know the, the the adage to speak the truth in love, that is life giving. And if you've ever been in a context, either it's a personal relationship or you've lived in a country or at a time when when lies are are common, uh, you know, coming from the leadership or the government, you know that there's often oppression and exploitation that goes along with that, right? Mm-hmm. When you can trust that things are being said are true and rightly reflect the world around us, you can find some hope in that. There, there's, a, there's a kind of accountability and a stability. There's an order that comes with that that creates the possibility for life and for flourishing and for blessing others and for caring for others. And when that's lost, it's, it, we shouldn't be surprised to find that abuse comes with it. Right. And I think that's something that we get at, you know, even in getting in in a couple of different spaces in Scripture and in different metaphors. You know, I think of the one that comes most commonly to mind for me is how John in his gospel and in his letters uses the image of light uh, or the metaphor of light to be both for Christ, but also for God's revelation and how where there's light, there's life. And where the light shines, you know, the darkness, right? The darkness, which which obfuscates and confuses and, dece- and deceives is, is pushed away. And then he calls us to be people of the light. As we're in the light, we should walk in the light. You know, this idea of, um, and that's not merely talking about truth. You know, that's, that's also referencing Christ's glory and the glory of God, and yet, you know, it, it it just makes that connection so clearly between the importance of being truthful people, of being sincere. The you know, larger catechism talks about sincerity and authenticity in your faith and in your language, and that that provides a, a kind of groundwork or, or substrate under which you can have a, a flourishing life and you can encourage flourishing with others.
1: Another thing that really struck me for the language of the larger catechism is the sense of rejoicing the other person's good name that we don't see the flourishing of others as kind of uh competing with our own flourishing or something to be envious about again it goes to show that every single one of these commandments are connected to one another but rather when you see someone um flourishing you want to propel that you want to actually use any matter of influence you can uh, that you, you happen to have for example to see that other person flourish without actually at the same time feeling that if they flourish. Then you must also be diminished, but actually there's this rejoicing in it so so there's an effective dimension to this too that you're not only wanting to tell the truth but you want to rejoice in the good that people get when you speak the truth about them
3: mm. And larger catechism has been actually very instructive for me. I was rereading it, um, and there are aspects of it that say defending their innocency uh, this, unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them, discouraging bears bladders, and slanders. I think something I've been struck by, and I'm curious to know what your experience has been, is that for some reason, there seems to be like a very low tolerance um, among certain evangelical circles with obviously like adultery, that, that's really bad, and um, murder, obviously, right? But in my experience, I think there's been like a fairly high tolerance of violating the ninth commandment. Like uh, I remember one pastor, he was sharing with me that he said, yeah, you know, in our uh, denomination and so forth, really the only sins that can disqualify you are like uh, adultery and drunkenness. And I was very struck by that. And I asked, so um, what do you guys think of the ninth commandment? And it was almost a flip of like, well, you know, like, Everyone lies, right? And uh, so that's something I've been thinking about a lot. And somewhat related to that, is I've noticed a certain hesitation to, like, pursue the truth. Does that make sense? Like to see really what happened, um, whatever the motives are, and like this concern, like, not to rock the boat. So that's why Ninth Commandment has actually been something I've been thinking about a lot over the past two three years.
0: Why do you think that is? Why why does it feel like, and wh- whether or not it's true, I, I suspect if we pulled up somebody from 200 years ago, they'd say, oh, yeah, lying was a problem back then, too. But why does it feel like a premium on the truth has been downgraded even in Christian circles in recent years? Do you all have any thoughts on that?
2: I was thinking about this while Paul was talking and kind of pulling in some thoughts from the beginning that there there is just in this combative atmosphere where we feel like christianity is embattled or our value systems are embattled there there is this kind of war mentality that takes over that you know that um the the ends the means justify the ends kind of kind of idea and and i've i've seen from a lot of kind of polemicists and from a lot of you know christian pastors and and christian writers this disinterest in representing people well if they're our enemy you know if they're a friend if they're for us if they're in our group or in our camp then we will we will present them well and project uh you know good vibes towards them but if they're the enemy if they're the person that we need to take down then anything counts anything is worth saying as long as it uh as long as it's for the right team
0: yeah it's interesting kind of an ends justifies the means approach to truth which interestingly i think actually the root meaning of the 10 commandment the, the ninth commandment but at the root meaning of it you have this idea of false witness which does assume a kind of court case of some kind or something along those lines and in other words it would be someone who's using deception in order to either take someone else down or to benefit themselves in some way you know and it really is addressing exactly that thing that that thought that well if it's in the if, if it's in the cause of a thing that i consider to be right it's okay to play with truth and that well, does seem to be something that's a part of the sort of the mindset yeah,
2: what matters is the greater truth in some way. And that means tearing down, you know, the person rather than the argument.
3: Yeah, I guess it's also gotten really tricky. Like one of the interesting situations um, I've sort of encountered is, one of the things that the Bible I think really does promote is um, direct conversation. You know, if you feel like you've been wronged or any of just have direct conversations. And uh, something I've been very struck by is uh, I've you know suggested to different people. I myself have been in situations where I've said, "Why don't we just um, all get together and talk?" You know that's what the Bible says, you know insofar as it's possible. And um, the response has been, well, you know the victim should not be forced to meet the uh, perpetrator. And you know I, obviously there are clear examples of when that is true. But, you know, I wonder if that has just become a way to circumvent the truth, you know, it's sort of a convenient way to circumvent it, especially because, you know, nowadays, you know, obviously, um, you know, like the whole abuse and victim language is just everywhere. So that has almost become this kind of um, card for avoiding, I think, what the Bible calls us to do, just to have simple, direct conversations in order to facilitate both the truth and reconciliation. And um, just anecdotally and experientially, I noticed that there seems to be a shift away from that in the name of protecting the um, supposed you know, victim and so forth.
2: Well, I mean, I, I hear that, Paul. I, I do wonder, uh, having seen kind of Matthew 18 used to obfuscate the truth, to, to, to manipulate, uh, you know, I, I kind of wonder about that. Um, I, I hear what you're saying, but maybe it, maybe with these abuse kind of situations, it, it is endemic in some circles for people to use kind of this this call, this call for truth, you know, um, to perpetuate, perpetuate lies.
0: Well, it seems like there's there's clearly times, and I think this is one of those things where you have a good realization that can lead to kind of a, a blanket generalization that may not, may not be as helpful. And the, and, the, and the helpful, the healthy realization, of course, is that if you take something like Matthew 18 and apply it to a situation where there's a you know, real power differential, for instance, then you can be kind of um, bringing about abuse or re or reabuse, you know, abuse in a new way. And there's a wisdom that needs to be applied, so that we know when those are the case and when it's when that's not the case. You know, so you don't bl- have a blanket generalization, so that you know we basically get rid of, you know, in, in the American legal system, you call it due process, right? But the idea, the, the the ability for someone to know what they're being accused of, and I think actually that I mean that's it's not hard to see where that this question of wisdom and discernment shows up in culture pretty regularly. You know, what point? Does something can something be handled through private confrontation, repentance, and restoration and at what point you know does something need to be sort of you know declared publicly and as soon as you get involved in church discipline issues, you know this question comes up right away and it's not always an easy one to know yeah. when something's public and when something's private. I remember an issue that came up here about four or five years ago not at, not at the seminary but involved a church with the seminary and someone came and was asking for advice. And as we were talking, you know, we realized this is, it it was a really hard, it was a hard thing because it was kind of private, but there wasn't like an obvious victim. And you're just at what point there was a public expression of it, but no one knew what was going on. You know, it was just all kinds of really difficult stuff and you need wisdom and, and counsel, I think on when to, when to go into this, but keeping in mind this call for truth, this call for for sincerity and authenticity is is an important one
2: yeah i think this is where like gray's opening uh comments are so helpful that the design of the command is to promote life to promote you know our ability to grow and to flourish and and what that means is just because it's true doesn't mean it needs to be said or Mm -hmm. Just because it's true doesn't mean that it shouldn't impact the way I say it um you know that there are there there is wisdom in who hears what, why they hear what you know all of those kinds of questions need to be uh you need to be assessed i it remind, there's this line in the catechism that I love when when the catech when i'm uh, sorry it's in the confession when it's talking about uh election it says that that we need to be wise in how we communicate this doctrine, um, and there's that's an important reminder. Here we've got this a very important doctrine that we need to promote, that we need to talk about that is that is good and true, but that doesn't mean that I jump out of the gate in my evangelism w- with a you know a non-Christian with with election, and uh, that there, there is a uh, an importance in order and timing, and all of these kinds of practical matters that involve how I speak the truth to others. And it must be in love, and it must be to edify and build up.
3: You know, I was just going to mention when um, Scott was talking about wisdom, like, you have to factor, obviously, your personality. I mean, you have the type, like, they just want to argue, confront, you know, and that's not healthy, too. And then, obviously, there's the type that, you know, avoids confrontation in all settings so it has even as we pursue the truth like it's easy for someone to apply matthew 18 who likes confrontation who likes arguing mm-hmm. you know um and then totally disregard um and anyway so i was going to comment on that but i felt like you guys covered that already so
0: no I i think i think that's a good point you know there, there are these and this is often how society works and how you know discourses and communities work and, and i don't i don't want to sound hegelian So you can rebuke me later, Dr. Sutanto, but there, there is kind of a swinging pendulum effect that happens and you like, we like to think that we end up in a healthy space at the end of the swing of the swinging pendulum. But, you know, there, there are kind of good things that happen or helpful realizations and then people respond. And, you know, in a time where people are, uh, you know, grieving the loss of truth in society, the person who says, I just speak my mind might sound like a moral person. And yet they're really just, uh, you know, they're cruel or harsh in their, in their demeanor. You know, I was thinking about something else. There's this idea of truth. You know, of course, Pilate asked the question, right. You know, what, what is truth? And this is a question even today. And I was, I was thinking about this in some other work that we were doing, but I was going back and had read uh, Jacques Derrida's 1966 speech at Johns Hopkins university, which is kind of a famous take down of structuralism. and And part of his argument was that we can't we can't know if what we're saying is true because we don't know the extent of the cosmos, basically. We, we don't know where we are in the cosmos do we know 99% of everything or do we only know 2% of everything you know where, where are we can we really get at this idea that structuralism was so into which was this kind of grand unified theory of everything you know can we have a totalization of knowledge and his argument was because of our place within the system we can't ever we won't be able to ever know you know the totality of things Okay, this is a this is a real uh, paraphrase of his talk, and therefore his answer to that was therefore since we can't know what is true, you know we we should just play. That was his response: just play with ideas, just play with things. It doesn't matter if they're true or not. You can play with them, and that's where even ideas like deconstruction and literature show up. Now, you can play with the text; it doesn't matter what the text really is about, because there's no quote unquote really aboutness of the text. You know, you you can play with what's going on there, and. I think as Christians, while particularly, you know, as like a conservative Christian, you might decry postmodernism and and that kind of thinking that Derrida was putting forward, and yet you got to admit that he's got a point. You know, we 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 don't know we're finite individuals. We 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 have a sophisticated, in this day and age, a sophisticated notion of our own perspectives and how our perspectives change the way we understand and perceive the things around us, and that's that's actually quite healthy for us to be aware of that of different perspectives and. Uh, different value structures and how that informs our thought. And yet also as Christians, you know, we, we can take that, but we have to take it in light of what the scripture says is true about God, which is that he's the creator, right? That for him, the cosmos isn't unknowable and he reveals himself, right? I mean, this is, it's interesting that so much of the commands for us to be truthful are because we know of a God who reveals himself, and, um, you know, Moses is, is very clear. God does not lie. He, he's a God of truth. And as people of God, we're called to be anchored into that revelation of who God is. And even to kind of take make it a little more broadly, that's why we can even say truthful things about the world, because God has revealed himself into the world. So now we have an anchor that we can hold on to. We're not just floating in a world of play. Playful discourse, as Derrida would say, but we can actually, we can actually say true things, and we ought to say and be truthful about the world because, because God has revealed Himself. You know, which is a really, to me, that was kind of a groundbreaking realization back in seminary where I first kind of, I first got introduced to this idea that it's because of who God is as Creator and His self-revelatory character that humans can say truthful things and are therefore called to be truthful.
1: Yeah, I can't help but think about Van Til when you say that, Scott, because Van Til would say that you really can't say anything rightly unless you know everything. And lots of readers of Van Til would say, well, that's obviously false. But I think you know people who say that that's obviously false haven't really wrestled with what Derrida was talking about there. Mm-hmm. That it is precisely because we only have a finite knowledge of what we know. If you take away the creator of the universe, And we're going from a sort of completely horizontalized finite bottom up sort of perspective. It is true. He's he's saying it exactly right. That nobody actually knows what they don't know. Nobody actually knows the finitude of what they know. And so we can't say anything with certainty. We can't know with, with any kind of epistemic certainty at all, unless there is someone who knows absolutely everything. And out of all of the things that he knows, he reveals exactly what human beings need to know. Right. And to me it's just struck me that this this whole point of speaking of the truth is, is, is very much an act of the creature independent on the creator who's told him the truth, and now we have to live in that truth and abide in that truth but but also related to that and, and related to your Derrida point is it's it's very scary to think about well what what Paul has said before you know theres there's lots of folks, especially in in churchly theology circles, where they would say that they care so much about the truth that, yes, that's their goal, but they end up playing with ideas so that that truth ultimately would be vindicated. So then in their minds, they're justified in playing with smaller ideas or smaller ways in which people can be overpowered and, and people can be overcome for the sake of this greater truth that they think they're living for. So in a way, kind of toying with ideas for the sake of the greater truth becomes a sort of pious enactment. It looks pious to do that. So there's a kind of weird kind of combination of Derridian power play and and playing with ideas with this sort of living in the truth that could become really part of our own circles. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I think for many evangelicals, while they might, if they know enough to know about Derrida, they would say, oh no, we don't believe that. And yet they've also absorbed it because we're all swimming in this water. We're all right. We're all breathing the same air. And it's, it's easy to have that idea of your truth versus my truth kind of come at, you know, it, it sort of start to play a role in your conversation and in your discourse. And in, and in doing so, yeah, you, you make a good point. The, the truth becomes indexed now on the perceiver of truth, not on reality. Right, and it's still even to this. You know, nowadays it's it's somewhat uh, uh, in certain circles it's somewhat naive to say, "Oh, my, you know, truth is indexed on reality or truth." Truth is connected to what's real in the world. People, are like, well, obviously that's a naive view of the world because it's all really just indexed on your perspective. And I think we're all breathing that air. And I think it's hard it's hard not to have that come in and shape your thinking about things.
1: It's important to keep all that in mind. That that this is why you know when it comes to things like church discipline, especially charges of faulty doctrinal thinking within the church that due process is important to do these things that you don't just rally against your brother even if you believe that this brother of yours is or or sister of yours is is holding to false doctrine when you bring charges against this person you know make sure that they're not blindsided by it make sure that you understand the consequences of this for them make sure that you really think about the sort of uh, the well-being of this person even though you might think that they're wrong about a particular doctrine still care about that person in the way in which you carry out your charges and don't let them be blindsided by it and i think so oftentimes because presbyterians in particular so we care a lot about the truth we care a lot about theology and and our you know um subscriptions to to, to the westminster standards and so on and sometimes that could blind us to in our zeal for the truth it could blind us to the well-being of the people that we are debating against because really we're all on the same team we're all pursuing the truth together when we're not God and we need to be humble about that and that should inform our due process.
0: Amen.
2: Yeah I think we've been talking a lot about kind of the the rhetoric and the conversation and that's all appropriate given especially kind of the polemical litigious land in which we live right now. Um, I I was wondering actually while you were uh, thinking while you were talking Scott about Derrida and uh, language games and things of that nature. I, I was actually thinking about fiction and one of the to to, to take a hard left turn into uh, literature and 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 more literary kinds of things. I, I was wondering. I've heard from multiple sources, especially kind of among Presbyterians, you know, that uh, pastors that say, you know, I don't read fiction because it's not true. Uh, I don't. Uh, I only do biographies. I only do histories or theology um so I was wondering about kind of like the appropriateness of uh the imagination of you know is it okay to uh well hey let's make it Christmas themed like uh Santa Claus is it okay to tell your kids about Santa Claus and elves and all these kinds of things and um where do we you know, where does the call for truth intersect with God giving us creative imagination and being able to 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 think through and uh, new worlds and that kind of stuff? Any thoughts on that from our Vantillian brothers?
0: No one's going to claim to be a Vantillian brother now that you ended it with that.
2: <laughs> I know you're all Vantillians. We're all Vantillians here
1: people overestimate the uh, chasm between Protestant scholasticism and Bantill. That's my comment on that, but anyway.
2: Okay, let me get this straight. So your comment on, do you tell your kids about Santa Claus is people, people overestimate. overestimate. <laughs> Great.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because you added it with that Bantillian comment. So. Um, uh, it's like, that's
0: like at the very end of class when you say, does anybody have any burning questions? That's a surefire way to shut down, shut down the questions.
1: Because yeah. no one wants
0: to have a burning question.
1: Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, that's a good question, though, Tommy. Do you do you tell her? Because with Santa Claus it's a more profound question than you think, perhaps, Tommy. It's, it's it's not an easy one to answer.
0: Well, okay. Before we get to Santa Claus, I I, I have a friend who's a pastor out in. Southern California, and he has a number of actors in his uh, in his church. And yeah, this is this has come up before, you know. But some of them have wrestled with the idea of being Christian actors who are being yeah. paid to go on stage and lie, right? And of course, I think that's where sort of being aware of genre comes into things, right? You know, uh, and and just the nature of language itself. We we can kind of we can we can go down to a very granular level here and even talk about using metaphor and analogy in conversation, you know, a a person's love is not really like a rose, right. (laughs) You know, or something like, like along those lines, but when it comes to kind of genre and communication, I think, yeah, we have to absolutely be open to truth being articulated in a variety of ways and having a variety of different relationships to the way in which language or communication is happening. And you can get very kind of specific about this, but, you know, acting is not lying because people know that this is the genre of this vocation, you know, which is to act and to portray a reality and a truth. We even have this in scripture. Samson tells riddles. Jesus tells parables. Right. You know, you you can have um, you can you can express truth in a variety of ways. Praise God that it's not merely in propositional, you know, indicative statements or something like that but in which we can articulate truth, you know, and so I think that's very, you know, as, as someone who's interested in, in literature, I, I think that's absolutely crucial, and I think the Bible completely yeah. affirms that. Uh, I'll leave Santa Claus to our systematic theologian, uh, because that's a, that's an easier question, so let me just go ahead and leave that off to, to Gray.
2: Well, I, I mean, I love uh, to, to interrupt Gray, <laughs> to, <laughs> to jump in line, sorry, Gray, I love that idea. And, uh, you know, especially applied to fiction. I remember when my kids were little, we would read to them, you know, various fiction books and, and my oldest would always ask now, dad, is that, is this true? Is this a true story? And I would, uh, you know, lo- loving literature the way I do, I would always say, well, there's truth in it. You know, it, it's, it's not true, true. And I'd make all these distinctions. And, and I think probably I said, I should have just said, yeah. no, this is, this is fiction. Um, I, I kind of did an Obi-Wan on her, and it, you know, the it all depends on your point of view kind of thing. And that was confusing. But there is what I was trying to get across to her is that there's truths in fiction. There are truths in this kind of in imaginative literature that we not can't necessarily get at propositionally. It's the you know, imagining something different that allows us to then see from a different perspective what. Mm-hmm what is, what is true and all great. Sorry for jumping in line there. You, you, you've cleaned me up.
1: No, I think you, you rescued me because speaking about Santa Claus is kind of a perilous endeavor. And I don't want to tie the consciousness of all the parents out there listening and whether or not they should repent about telling their kids about Santa Claus. So I I won't speak in Santa Claus, but I'll just echo what you both have said there that, um, telling fiction can serve the truth. Uh, because, precisely because there's truth in it, and and actually, this is going to sound incredibly nerdy, but I was thinking about Hegel, and we've mentioned Hegel before, and sometimes he's treated as a boogeyman, but but Hegel makes this wonderful distinction between concept and representation, and he argues that philosophers have to think about the concept, whereas the common man thinks about representation. Now, what do we, what does he mean by that? Well, in class, I, I give an analogy of me watching Les Mis with, with um, someone else, and this person took away from Miz that this is just a nice story about a thief on the run from a cop. That's really all this person has seen about Miz. and I, I was so frustrated because you now I was teary-eyed throughout the whole thing because this is really about redemption and forgiveness and about how uh, grace ultimately uh, wins. And and to me, that's the Hegelian distinction there. There, there's the concept which is forgiveness, but it's one thing to say. Hey, it's better to forgive than to judge. And it's another thing to show that through something like lameness. And, and Hegel would argue the concept can develop itself in spirit by proceeding through different representations. Mm-hmm. So through lameess, you can see this concept powerfully, but maybe through another play, you could see that concept in an even newer way. There's it's the same concepts, forgiveness, but the spirit of forgiveness develops from lameness to, let's say, this other play that you see. There's, there's different angles to it. And maybe arguably somebody would say Spider-Man No Way Home is a development of the spirit of forgiveness or something like that in a he- Hegelian fashion. But um, so should someone, you, someone, like,
0: might that? That, someone, someone might say that. Is just saying someone <laughs> might say that? Someone might say that.
1: Okay. But but should should you tell others about Santa Claus? You know, it's kind of like should you tell others about, you know, lameness or Spider-Man? There's an analogy there. And I think if it if it forwards the spirit of a true concept, I think uh, in that Hegelian sense. Uh, yeah, you
0: should. Yeah. There's something about, you know, mimesis, right? The the representation of the world in art or in literature and this idea that why why, why would someone do this? Why not just tell a story? Why not just always write in biographies and autobiographies, which of course are also selective as well, right? We've got to remember our our little Derrida sitting on our shoulder reminding us of that. Um, But you know, why why represent reality in a way that sort of draws our attention to forgiveness, like Le Miz does, right? Or maybe a law-grace kind of conflict. And it is about both making similarities, right? Good, good art, good imaginative art, good fiction has a good representation or a a reliable seeming representation of the world. And yet it also gives you the ability to draw attention through difference. So not merely mimicking the world, but actually creating a difference, whether that's a man who can shoot webs out of his wrists, um or out of the mechanisms that he made out of his wrist i I didn't keep up with the evolution of spider-man so i'm I'm sure like wolverine he actually has web slinging abilities is that true i'm I'm looking at gray right now as i'm as i'm saying all this you're embarrassing yourself scott yeah i am embarrassing myself i suddenly Uh, had a thought does he does he still use the mechanisms or does he did he evolve into something else
1: it depends which which Spider-Man in the movies. I'm not a I'm, I don't read the comic book, so Toby that's right. And and, and, and speaking Andrew, about playing with
0: speaking about playing with uh, multiverses, I think this one plays a good bit with that, doesn't it?
1: I know. So you know, just <laughs> it doesn't matter ultimately because there's <laughs> always there's always a universe in which what you said is true. So
0: there you go. Okay. Well, back to my point. Um, you know that because of because of difference. You know, there's similarity and difference in all of this. And because of, you know, using difference and similarity in that and creating a conflict there so that you can draw attention to a point like grace versus law. OK, or in the parables, you know, it's not the most important part about the, the parable of the woman who loses her coin is not that she was using currency at the time or something like that. Right. That's not what's important. However, it's a faithful representation of the world in order to draw our attention to the desire that she had for this coin. you know. Um, so, I think that's the that's the, the beautiful part of of fiction and of uh, uh, you know representation of the world is that you can use reliable representation to draw attention to something that might otherwise be somewhat murky in life. Right, it's kind of hard to see it when you're in the 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 the, the warp and weft of the uh, of, of reality, but when you're in a book or you're in you're watching a movie, you can really with laser-like focus, draw attention to particular truths. And yeah. I think that's super powerful. You know, and with Santa Claus, it's funny in our family, we, you know, we probably should have thought more about this, but I think early on with the kids, we always just kind of went with the flow. If you don't say anything, then they're all going to believe in Santa Claus by default. And um, we played that up. And yet at the same time, you know, there came a point, it was relatively early in our, in our, family where it became a joke that all the kids were in on too there would probably be something wrong right if you're 36 year old you know was like will ferrell and elf and still believed in santa claus or something right that that might show some bad parenting um but yeah i think that's a part of it's kind of not going to be the main source of our uh, you know training of the imaginations of our children and yet at the same time there's there's something to that you want to train up their imagination to be able to imagine and enjoy and have fun
2: yeah that that's that was our pattern as well, not to make it all about not to, I did mean it just as a thought experiment and not a like thus saith the lord hey this
0: of, is a this is a practical podcast. We're offering real life solutions,
2: but you know, I was told you can't do this is lying to your kids, and then we kind of did exactly what you you described, Scott. We ended up just kind of going with the flow and and as I put it, kind of playing Santa Claus and the kids played with us and there was a natural kind of organic time in which that that play was more self-conscious than not and no one got lied to and it was just kind of you know immersing yourself in this imagine you know in your imagination and training the imagination i like how you put that and the effect of that is actually that we can you you know god uses our imagination to prepare us and. Instruct us and train us for actual life. You know, as you said, if I I see this thing in the story, I see this. Uh, I maybe it's maybe it's even a true story. You know, somebody reports to me, you know, an experience that they had about uh, maybe a trauma or a success or a victory or something like that, and then suddenly I'm equipped with their story as I navigate my life, and that becomes an asset that God uses to train up His up his people i think there's a reason uh, he he gives us stories in scripture and that is so that we can we can see israel we can see david's story we can see their victories and their successes and their failures and project that onto our own existence our own life and prepare for what is what is to come
0: mm. amen well all of that is to say friends do not lie be people of the truth. If, if we hadn't clearly stated that yet, let's make sure we get that out there. Um, this has been a great conversation, everybody. Thanks so much for your contributions to it. Uh, I, I I always love these conversations. And um, oftentimes I come in here thinking, well, I guess this will be a pretty plain one. It'll It'll just be a pretty easy conversation. And I always get Uh, happily surprised by the direction that we go. So thanks for your time. Everyone, thanks for listening as well. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever podcasts are available. Uh, If you'd like to learn more about Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., you can go to rts.edu forward slash Washington. If you'd like to pose a question to the faculty that we'll answer at a later date, please go to the show notes for this episode and you'll see a link there where you can post that question. It's been great being with you all today. We look forward to being with you again next week. Until then, take care.
1: sorry tommy go ahead
2: oh i was just i was just pointing at my my john owen over there oh nice you know that was my uh uh graduation present from high school i asked for it from my parents and they were like really you don't want like <laughs> a cd player or something you know something that normal kids get
3: yeah